Welcome back to St. Anthony's Looks at the World, a podcast from St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. This is our fourth episode in this fascinating new series of interviews with outstanding scholars from the college about important issues of our times. I'm Dr. Julie Newton, a research fellow in the Russian and Eurasian Studies Center here at St. Anthony's, as well as a DPhil alumna of the college. And today, I have the great pleasure of talking with Professor Archie Brown, a renowned specialist on Russian politics about his new riveting book called The Human Factor, Gorbachev, Reagan, and Thatcher, and the End of the Cold War. The book is newly published by Oxford University Press. Archie is an emeritus professor of politics at Oxford and an emeritus fellow of St. Anthony's. He is the author or editor of 20 books, including The Myth of the Strong Leader, colon, Political Leadership in the Modern Age. That book was even recommended by Bill Gates as one of the five best books he had read in 2016, which is quite an accolade, since as we all know, Bill Gates reads a lot of books. Archie's previous books include The Rise and Fall of Communism, which won the McKenzie Prize of the Political Studies Association of the UK for the best politics book of the year, and also the Alec Nove Prize. An earlier book which firmly established Archie's reputation in the eyes of many as the finest scholar on Gorbachev is called The Gorbachev Factor, which also won both the McKenzie and Alec Nove Prizes. I also would like to add that Archie was my DPhil supervisor at St. Anthony's during the Gorbachev era. So it's a particular privilege for me, Archie, to be online with you today to discuss the central themes and big ideas of this excellent new work of yours, The Human Factor. So with that, let's now begin. As I just mentioned, Archie, you are rightly known as one of the world's leading scholars on Russian politics, the history of communism and the USSR, particularly during the Gorbachev era. But you're also a leading scholar of politics more broadly in both democratic and authoritarian countries. And much of your work over the decades has focused on the causes of political change. In The Human Factor, you take us back to the 20th century to re-examine the causes of the Cold War's unexpected and peaceful end and the roles of the three leaders, Gorbachev, Reagan, and Thatcher, who brought that about. Now, there's a lot of great scholarship out there about this history and this in this particular period of history, the cold, end of the Cold War, including a lot of work by yourself. But it seems to me there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about this period. So I'm curious, do you think today's mainstream political narratives correctly explain how and why the Cold War ended in 1989? And if not, how should we be rethinking this history? Well, first of all, Julie, thank you very much for the extremely kind introduction. Um, the, it's a pleasure to be discussing this with you. Uh, the, there is, a, of course, a substantial academic literature in which academics, as usual, disagree about the end of the Cold War. But I would say there's quite a prevailing narrative, especially a prevailing political narrative and popular narrative that the Cold War ended because the Soviet Union simply couldn't keep up with the West and the United States in particular militarily. Um, and there's another perhaps complementary narrative that um, the Soviet Union 
uh, were so far behind economically that they had to more or less throw in the towel. Now, I think that both of those narratives are misleading. Uh, the fact is that um, in the late 1940s, the 1950s, and the 1960s, the United States had a superior military strength to the Soviet Union. But that was a time of communist expansion. The fact that the United States was more powerful didn't stop communism expanding. It didn't stop the Soviet Union in the 40s taking over Eastern Europe. It didn't stop them supporting the Cuban Revolution, even though they didn't start it. And um, the period in which um, the Cold War came to an end was a period of approximate military parity between the superpowers. There was a rough parity from the early 1970s onwards, and there was still an approximate parity in the mid-1980s, notwithstanding Reagan's military build-up. <clears throat> Each side had the capacity to utterly annihilate the other several times over. So I don't find the, the military explanation um, satisfactory. Mm -hmm. Then the economic um, explanation also, I think, falls down. There's no question that the Soviet Union was um, economically far behind the West. It was also not doing as well as the newly industrializing countries in Asia. But the Soviet Union was not in economic crisis in the mid-1980s. In fact, it was political change in the Soviet Union, radical political reform, that turned the situation into a crisis. Uh, the main reason why that argument doesn't work is that Gorbachev proceeded to give far higher priority to ending the Cold War and to radical political reform uh, than to economic reform. The political reform didn't do anything to improve the economic situation. In fact, it made it worse because the command economy no longer worked, it never worked terribly well, but it no longer worked even as well as it had in the past once people no longer obeyed commands as the country became freer by the day. And so things were going from bad to worse economically. It was as late as 1990 that Gorbachev embraced the principle of a market economy, accepting that um, this would do more to raise living standards than the command economy had ever done. But even then, he didn't introduce um, such economic reform that happened under uh, Yeltsin later. So um, if um, the economic imperative was what caused the end of the Cold War, why on earth um, wasn't there radical economic reform as distinct from relatively tinkering reforms in the Gorbachev era? That's extremely interesting and very compelling, both your military explanations and the the, the, your talk about the economic imperative and how the facts don't don't add up to support those popular mainstream narratives in the West. But what about in Russia? What about the mainstream popular narratives in Russia about the Cold War's end? Do they also get things wrong there? And if so, in what ways would you say they do? I think they do get them wrong. I mean, you kindly described me as a, an authority on Russian politics, Julie. I, I, these days, I'm not studying Russia as closely as I did in the Soviet period or the early post-Soviet Russian period. Um, and probably I'm paying more attention to Western countries now. Uh, but um, from what I can see of the Russian narrative, 
it more or less amounts to the fact that um, the Soviet, that the United States did in a sense win the Cold War. They wanted to destroy the Soviet Union, uh, break up the country, and that Gorbachev was a weak leader and uh, he didn't defend Soviet national interests. And in particular, he um, betrayed the Soviet military industrial complex. He didn't take their advice. I mean, some people in Russia go so far as to call him a traitor. But that, of course, is very far from being a universal view in Russia, but it's one that's quite widespread. You certainly come across it um, quite a lot. Um, now, I think that is also terribly misleading um, because Gorbachev was, in fact, a, a Russian patriot. Um, but also it's misleading because it wasn't Western policy to break up the Soviet Union. In fact, George Bush was criticized um, for going to Kiev in 1991 and um, urging um, cooperation with the center and, and saying it wasn't for him to tell the republics of the center what to do, but you know they wanted them to, to work together. Um, the, there was great concern within the American administration of what was colloquially referred to as loose nukes, that um, if the Soviet Union broke up, you know, what was going to happen to control of nuclear weapons? So for various reasons, the breakup of the Soviet Union was not um, a Western um, policy objective. <clears throat> the only um, parts of the Soviet Union that Western countries were committed um, in principle to seeing it become independent were the three Baltic states because they'd never accepted as legal their incorporation in the Soviet Union in the first place. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Interesting. Well, this you you've touched on uh, Bush and the role and the role of political leadership here. This brings me to the idea of political leadership more broadly, because of course political leadership has been one of the major fields of inquiry for you over the last fifty years or so. Indeed, the title of your book, "The Human Factor," analyzes political leadership in relation to the biggest geopolitical change to take place in the second half of the 20th century, which of course is the end of the Cold War. So I'm interested if you could please tell us a bit about why you decided to call this book The Human Factor. What's the significance of this phrase, The Human Factor? One reason for calling it that is it's a phrase that was used a lot by Gorbachev, Chelyvyechsky Factor in Russian. And um, he used that um, as early as um, a speech he made in 1984, December 84, before he became Soviet leader. And he used it a lot. That already was a, a kind of departure from Soviet orthodoxy. He made many more fundamental departures because it was emphasizing the importance of the individual in Soviet society. And also when he became Soviet leader, it was emphasizing the significance of relations among leaders from both sides of the Cold War divide. So a lot of emphasis on the importance of individuals, um, even from Gorbachev. And I call it the human factor above all, because I think that the individuals made a huge difference. I mean, in particular, I think that Gorbachev was indispensable for this process because um, we know the views. I, I know the views of every member of the Soviet Politburo, the 10 people who were left standing, some of them only just, when Konstantin Chernyanka died 
in March 1985, and none of them, apart from Gorbachev, would have um, liberalized the system, would have allowed um, contested elections, would have um, legitimized dissent, would have raised expectations in Eastern Europe, and would have um, then tolerated um, what happened in 1989. But what happened in 1989 would have been very different because the expectations would not have been aroused if any of the other leaders had um, taken power in March 1985. Gorbachev, as second secretary, took the initiative then. I mean, he chaired the meeting of the Politburo on the very evening Chernyenko died. And in that sense, you know, he almost grabbed power. Um, some people say he was indecisive. There was nothing indecisive about his actions um, on the day that Chernyenko died. Um, so I, I, I think that Gorbachev, um, I mean, if you, you've got to look at the realistically alternative candidates to him. You could no doubt find plenty of Soviet intellectuals who, who might have been at least as liberal or, or at least as democratic as Gorbachev, but they weren't going to become general secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. So in that sense, he was um, absolutely crucial. Um, Ronald Reagan was very important for a variety of reasons. Um, obviously, the United States was the other superpower, and it was a, a militarily, they were much on a par, but economically and in other respects, it was well ahead of the Soviet Union. Um, but Ronald Reagan had a number of advantages, as well as some disadvantages. One of the advantages was that he had a long record as a hardline anti-communist, um, some people did actually in 1987 accuse him in the United States of being soft in communism, but it didn't really um, have much impact. It was not very convincing. And um, so he, he, he had no big problems with the right wing of the Republican Party. He also was somebody who had big ideas, maybe not a lot, a lot of ideas, but those ones he had were big. Uh, he was a big picture politician. He didn't at all get engrossed in detail. But one thing he shared with Gorbachev was a desire to eliminate entirely uh, nuclear weapons. And um, that was a point in which they agreed to some extent, um, well, to a large extent, but the, the thing was scuppered by Reagan's obsessive um, adherence to his strategic defense initiative, anti-ballistic missile defense, SDI. Uh, and that, of course, was um, one of his downsides for Gorbachev, the, the fact that um, um, Reagan was so committed to that. And indeed, Reagan's arms buildup was, um, for Gorbachev, um, something that was difficult. It made it harder for him to persuade the Soviet um, military-industrial complex that they shouldn't take an equally hard line. Mm -hmm. um, and then Margaret Thatcher was... Um, significant because of her very close relationship with Reagan. She was far and away Reagan's favorite foreign leader. Um, he, Reagan referred to her as a soulmate. And so she had some real influence over Reagan. And she was respected by the whole Reagan administration. Uh, people who didn't get on with each other, like George Shultz, Secretary of State, and Caspar Weinberger, the Defense Secretary, they both had a high regard for Margaret Thatcher. But in fact, Margaret Thatcher's um, influence helped um, the Schultz position much more than it helped Weinberger's because she was helping to persuade Reagan and underline his um, 
interest in meeting with Soviet leaders by telling him that Gorbachev was a very different type of Soviet leader from any that he'd encountered before, and that he was serious about um, making very big changes in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And then if I just add one other thing, the, um, I mean, there are other people as well, who, if we're talking about the human factor, who really mattered. I mean, George Shultz was extremely important. Reagan, as I've mentioned, and this is well known, was a big picture person and didn't get engrossed in policy detail. So he relied a great deal on, on Schultz for the um, for negotiation uh, with the Soviet Union. And even within his National Security Council, it made a difference when the top Soviet specialist, um, Richard Pipes, was replaced by Jack Matlock in nine, late 1982. Pipes went back to his history chair in Harvard in 1983, Jack Matlock became the top Soviet specialist in the NSC. And he was writing, um, drafting um, almost all of Reagan's letters to Gorbachev. And uh, he was somebody who uh, believed in engaging with the Soviet Union and encouraged um, Reagan to meet with his Soviet counterparts. So these, I think, are some of the examples why the human factor um, really did matter. That's that's terrific. And if we push that one step further, you've you've outlined why each one of these three um, has been um, is is particularly important. And any alternative would not have pursued the same kinds of policies or made the same impact. But let's take the three of them together. What would you say? Why and how was their interrelationship so significant? Why, in other words, did you choose these? three as a group, as if to say there's something unique about their interrelationship that you wanted to point out? I think there was. the. Um, I mean, the one who might look the oddest to be there is Margaret Thatcher, because British military power was so incomparably less than that of the Soviet Union or the United States. But um, simply because of her close relationship with Reagan, I mean, they saw eye to eye, both the, the both lifelong anti-communists, and uh, they thought that you know the West had been far too weak vis-à-vis the Soviet Union. Um, so where they were coming from made it all the more important, you know, where they arrived. And um, what was more surprising, of course, was the relationship that Thatcher established with Gorbachev. She met him for the first time three months before he became Soviet leader. And he, he valued that and when she spoke up in, in, in favor of him then. It, it did him some good both at home and abroad. And um, it began a sort of respectful relationship in which they both argued vigorously. Um, but it grew into a real friendship. I mean, Margaret Thatcher said um, to the person who was about to become British ambassador to Moscow, Roderick Braithwaite, in uh, late 1988, um, uh, that... Um, if um, if Dukakis becomes president, um, Gorbachev will be my only friend left. Well, to talk about you know the general secretary of the Soviet Communist Party as her only foreign political friend, um, that, that that was quite something from the Iron Lady. Yeah. So um, Thatcher was um, a kind of intermediary. I mean, she was very effective. She wasn't one of nature's diplomats, but she was very effective in recommending Gorbachev to Reagan and Reagan to Gorbachev. And in fact, her foreign policy advisor in 
10 Downing Street, Sir Percy Craddock disapproved of this. He talked about her, he wrote about her in, in his memoirs <clears throat> as an agent of influence in both directions. And he said that especially from Thatcher's visit to the Soviet Union in March 1987, uh, Gorbachev became a kind of icon for her and he found it difficult to talk with her objectively about what was happening in the Soviet Union because she identified so much with Gorbachev. So for the, this leader coming from a very conservative, very anti-Soviet background, and then becoming Gorbachev's strongest supporter among conservative leaders worldwide, mm -hmm. uh, that was of some significance. And uh, you know, taken in conjunction with her strong relationship from the outset with Ronald Reagan. Can you tell us a bit about the aims and assumptions of these three leaders at the time they came to power and how their perceptions evolved over time, how they learned from each other or, or, and how they changed? Well, I'll start with Gorbachev because he changed the most and the way he changed um, affected the perceptions of Reagan and Thatcher. Gorbachev from the outset of his general secretaryship did want to end the Cold War, but he couldn't foresee what far-reaching change would be required, um, nothing like the extent of what happened. And he did want to reform the Soviet system, but he believed it was reformable. And his views became more radical year by year, month by month indeed. And uh, by, by the middle of 1988, he had come to the conclusion that reform was not enough and that systemic change was required. Fundamental transformation of the political system. And once you introduced contested elections and they were announced in 1988 and came in March, took place in March, 1989, the Soviet Union could not be the same again. And this exposed to the world that the Soviet Communist Party, in spite of its claims of monolithic unity, in fact, contained people of the most diverse views. Within that party of almost 20 million people, there were <clears throat> Stalinists, Russian nationalists, um, would-be free marketeers, social democrats, all sorts of people. And a lot of this came to the surface in those elections and members of the Communist Party stood against each other on fundamentally different platforms. Now, for many people in the Soviet leadership, that was terribly alarming. But for Gorbachev, it was a big step forward in the democratization process. Democratization was a word he used a lot. And Western leaders at first thought, you know, he can't be serious, this is propaganda. But actually, he meant it. And what he meant by it became <clears throat> more radical over time. So Margaret Thatcher was able to respond to that. Um, you know, she held a number of seminars in the Soviet Union. I took part in three of them. And uh, one just before she went to the Soviet Union in 1987, and um, that she had very different views, um, including people like Robert Conquest, you know, saying that nothing really is changing. And uh, when uh, Charles Paul, her private secretary, wrote up um, his... Um, account of that meeting for the cabinet office, government office, uh, foreign office, um, it went to the foreign office as well, but uh, I mean, the papers were in the cabinet office. Mm -hmm. uh, he descri described the participants as um, the um, 
the enthusiasts and the skeptics. Hmm. And I would say at that point, he, he himself in, in his account um, leaned very much towards the skeptics, and that was probably Margaret Thatcher's own position at the time. She liked Gorbachev, but she was skeptical about the extent to which things would change very radically. But she went to the Soviet Union then, and she had 11 hours of conversation with Gorbachev, mm -hmm. seven hours of direct meetings, then four hours of dinners with more conversation with him. And uh, she did an interview on Soviet television in which she said exactly what she thought and really wiped the floor with her three Soviet interviewers. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gorbachev was perfectly happy with that. He said she won the battle of the screen and he wasn't at all perturbed by it. Um, and, and so she came back from that visit of almost a week, I would say as one of the enthusiasts. And indeed, you know, Percy Craddock bore that out. He said from the time of that visit onwards, um, you know, Gorbachev had become for her something of an icon. Um, so um, compared with her views when she came to office in 1979, um, then there, there's no comparison. She was just utterly skeptical about change for the better in the Soviet Union at that time. Now, Reagan um, was an optimist by nature, as indeed was Gorbachev. Um, and Reagan, Reagan's optimism really consisted of thinking that, you know, they, they would defeat the Soviet Union, not militarily, because he certainly didn't want um, nuclear war, obviously not, but that um, he thought that um, the United States, well, sometimes the Reagan supporters spoke about uh, making the Soviet Union spend itself to death. Well, that was possibly one aspect of the policy. Um, but Reagan, I would say, increasingly emphasized peace through strength, um, and he increasingly emphasized the peace component. Now, a lot of his um, uh, fiercest opponents thought he was interested only in the strength, but he really was interested in negotiation as well. Mm -hmm. And so what was happening under Reagan and what continued after a long delay with um, his successor, George H.W. Bush, was a negotiated end of the Cold War. Um, so I think it's wrong, and, and, and Jack Matlock, who was very much involved in this process, um, has said the same, that uh, it's wrong to think of one side defeating the other. It was a negotiated end to the Cold War in which um, both sides won, though whether they made the most of um, their victory in the end and built on that is quite another matter. One of my favorite chapters of your book is called Why the Cold War Ended When It Did. And it's terrific because I think it brings together everything that you've been talking about uh, and and really uh, talks about how the leadership and, and power and ideas all come together. But I, I want to take a quote from this particular chapter where you write, it occurred when and how it did due to a combination of leadership, power, and ideas, most specifically in the Soviet Union. Could you unpack that for us a little bit? And what exactly do you mean by the combination of leadership, power, and ideas? One of the important points is that um, the power and authority of the Office of General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party was very, very great. But Gorbachev, over time, by his um, support for pluralization of the political system, actually undermined the 
powers of his own office. But at the beginning and for several years, he could get away with a lot simply because of the traditional authority accorded the general secretary. So the fact that um, someone came to hold that office who was open to new ideas and had a remarkably open mind yeah, was crucial importance. So a combination of Gorbachev's uh, openness to new ideas, his powers of persuasion, and the power and authority of his office uh, made radical change possible, though it did, it did require great political skill. Um, I mean, ideas were important, and uh, one thing which is insufficiently understood in the West, uh, for especially when people think, you know, it was all the West who, the West won and the West did everything that mattered to win the Cold War. Ideas were developing in the Soviet Union long before they were accepted by the top party leadership in the person of Gorbachev and some of the people he brought into the top leadership team. Uh, there's a good book by Robert English on this in which he mm -hmm. discusses in detail how um, in the research institutes, I've written a bit about this as well, but English in more detail, how in research institutes in the Soviet Union, a lot of new ideas were being developed, even in the 1970s. But um, quite appropriately, English um, entitles one of his chapters, uh, The New Thinking Comes to Power. Mm -hmm. And the new thinking comes to power was when Gorbachev came to power. That was the point at which a lot of these radical ideas um, were accepted and indeed these party intellectuals were encouraged to not only think the unthinkable, but say it out loud and, and send memoranda to, memoranda to the leadership, write articles for the newspapers, um, exploring new ideas. So ideas were important, <clears throat> but um, the power of the general secretaryship was important and Gorbachev's leadership was important. Power, of course, was important also in the international sense. I mean, it's because of the much greater material power, especially military power of the United States and the Soviet Union, that those were the two countries that were indispensable for negotiating the end of the Cold War. It's interesting that you bring together this triad of leadership powers and ideas uh, in a way that I think really makes us think, because there are an awful lot of people in Western countries today and also in Russia who wouldn't necessarily focus on, on this combination of power, leadership, and ideas. Instead, they tend to focus much more on the role, almost exclusively in some cases, on the role of material factors, such as a country's economic or military power. They would explain the cause and direction of political change purely in terms or predominantly in terms of uh, this these material factors but you i think really persuasively buck this trend uh, you show the the combination of power leadership and ideas and you know you really do with your human factor focus here focus on how certain individual leaders starting with gorbachev obviously but clearly reagan and also thatcher how leadership can, uh, or certain leaders can and do make decisive differences in history. But that brings me um, to perhaps other leaders. What about, for example, Reagan's successor, George H.W. Bush? You suggest that he too was very important, but what does Bush's role 
tell us about the importance of political leadership uh, in your view? Well, George H.W. Bush was very, very slow to accept that the Soviet Union was changing fundamentally. <clears throat> and um, in fact, there was such a long delay in his meeting Gorbachev um, and re-engaging with the Soviet Union that this um, was undermining Gorbachev's position. Um, even James Baker, the Secretary of State, didn't meet Gorbachev, for the didn't visit the Soviet Union for the first time and have a proper meeting with Gorbachev until May 1989. And uh, Jack Matlock, who by this time was um, the American ambassador to Moscow, tried and failed in March 1989 to persuade Bush that he should re-engage. And um, Gorbachev was you know, complaining to Margaret Thatcher and to any West European leader who would listen um, that you know, he was concerned about the lack of interest in, in engagement of the Bush administration. And Margaret Thatcher assured him that you know Bush really did want um, the Soviet perestroika to succeed because Gorbachev was beginning to think that they wanted it to fail. Um, <clears throat> so eventually they, they re-engaged and uh, Gorbachev was somewhat reassured. And then in certain respects, um, Bush was better from Gorbachev's point of view than Reagan because he paid more attention to policy detail. They could discuss things in nitty gritty detail uh, in a way in which you couldn't with Reagan. He relied very much on, on Schultz and others for that. Um, but, um, and then they did also reach you know, important agreements. Um, and it, had, it has to be said that you know, whoever was American president was an essential interlocutor, interlocutor for um, a Soviet leader. Um, so um, Bush, I think, um, was a mixed blessing for um, Gorbachev, as um, Reagan had been. But Bush was quite careful not to undermine Gorbachev's position once he had re-engaged with him. And as I mentioned earlier, he got into some trouble in the United States for not um, <clears throat> sticking up for Ukrainian independence at a time when he was trying not to undermine uh, Gorbachev. I mean, Margaret Thatcher said to George Bush in 1989, if you destabilize um, Gorbachev, you, you lose the um, chance of a democratic Soviet Union. So this, this was a factor in um, Bush's mind. Um, and Margaret Thatcher, who was um, opposed to German unification, I mean, she used the argument with Gorbachev, with Bush rather, that this would undermine Gorbachev. And uh, Bush was sympathetic to, to the view that he didn't want to undermine Gorbachev, but unlike Thatcher, he was committed to supporting German unification. So you know, clearly Bush had a, a significant role, but you know, as I understand it, the Cold War ended at the end of 1989. So most of the groundwork had been done in the Reagan administration. And so it was only in Bush's first year that the big changes took place. And the biggest change of all was um, uh, you know, what happened in Eastern Europe. And that, not, that had nothing to do with George Bush and nothing to do with Reagan either. Um, what caused um, the change in Eastern Europe was the fact that the Soviet Union had liberalized partially uh, democratized and that Soviet foreign policy had changed fundamentally. This had raised expectations to a huge extent in Eastern Europe 
after all, the countries of Eastern Europe would have become non-communist and independent years earlier, even decades earlier, but for the fact that they assumed that this would be to invite a Soviet military intervention and make a bad situation worse. Mm -hmm. So by 1989, the Gorbachev reforms had raised expectations in Eastern Europe, and one by one, the countries uh, of Eastern Europe became non-communist and independent. Now, as I understand it, the Cold War began with the Soviet takeover of Eastern Europe, and it's logical, therefore, to regard it coming to an end when the Soviet um, <clears throat> control of Eastern Europe um, ends and the countries of Eastern Central Europe become uh, fully independent, and that had happened by the end of 1989. I mean, German unification didn't occur until 1990, but already <clears throat> the Berlin Wall came down in 1980, November 1989, and it was becoming clear it was only a matter of time before Germany became reunited. But you know, I, I would see the Malta summit at the end of 1989 as symbolizing the end of the Cold War. Well, that's 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 fascinating. In fact, you mentioned the the beginning of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War. But one of your the chapters that I really loved the most was your whole history of the the very beginning of the Cold War and what the Cold War was all about and how it began um, in Eastern Europe. And so, that, as you rightly say, uh, intriguingly say, of course, it's 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 only fitting that it also ended in Eastern Europe. So if we circle back though, to where we started with this discussion, um, I, we began by talking about how and why popular political narratives about the end of the Cold War are often misleading or wrong. So if we now look back across the last three decades since the end of the Cold War, how would you assess the impact of these historical misunderstandings, Archie? What kind of damage do you think has been actually caused by misunderstanding why and how the Cold War ended as it did? I think that if people believe that it was military power that ended the Cold War, you know, they may be more tempted to take military action to solve political problems. Occasionally, this improves matters, but far more often than not, as we saw with the Iraq invasion, it makes things worse. Um, and uh, so that's a big misunderstanding that um, it was military power that forced the Soviet Union to do what it did, because as I mentioned earlier, when American military power was greatly superior to that of the Soviet Union, communism continued to expand. Um, and. Uh, I think there are a lot of lessons that could be learned from the way the Cold War ended, which have not been learned. And one is that it's, it is terribly important to engage. It's important to understand how your foreign policy decisions will be understood by the other side, by the countries it affects. There is a tendency, um, I think not least in the United States, to conduct foreign policy with an eye on domestic opinion rather than on opinion in the countries which are going to be most affected by it. So I think that um, Bush, for example, to give him his due, he was very conscious of how um, American policy would be perceived in the Soviet Union. 
when he met with Gorbachev in, <clears throat> in Malta in 1989 and referred to the fall of the Berlin Wall, he said, you know, I didn't come and dance on the wall. I, I, I wanted to, <clears throat> I didn't want to make your position more difficult. And Gorbachev said, yes, I noted that and I appreciated that. Mm -hmm. um, so th there was a concern then about how the policies would be perceived on the other side. And that, I think, has been much more lacking in the period since the end of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We go on forever about about all of this, the history and particular in the present. But I, we have to close, unfortunately. But before we do, let me add that we have we Antonians. I mean, I, you, you as an Antonian, myself as an Antonian. I think we're really lucky to have thousands of extraordinary alumni all over the globe and scores of whom you even taught, I think, over the last four or five decades. Do you have anything, is there anything that you might like to say to our fellow Antonians before we end this interview? Well, thanks, Julie, for giving me that opportunity. Um, I've been here about half a century now in St. Anthony's, uh, came as a relatively young fellow in 1971, and um, a lot of my friends are Antonians, uh, the people who were fellows of the college when I was, but many of my former students are among my closest friends now. And so uh, if any of you are out there, you know who you are. And so I would say to them um, uh, how glad I am to be communicating with you again. But I would say to all Antonians at this time of um, the coronavirus health crisis that um, keeps safe, and uh, some, some of us are, some of you rather, I would say, are um, in countries with more competent governments dealing with this than others. Um, but so everybody will have to be very careful and keep healthy. Um, but the other thing, maybe just to link uh, the Antonians with uh, the, the theme of my book, I would say that what our present circumstances show is how right Gorbachev was to emphasize that there are universal interests that transcend the interests of any nation, class, or group. And at the present time with our um, pandemic, you know, we are very conscious, I think, of these universal interests. And um, I just end by sending my warmest greetings to all Antonians. What a wonderful thing to close on, to remind us of the universal interests that was really a lesson uh, from Gorbachev, uh, and and uh, also, so you're a very apt person to pass on Gorbachev's message, which is also, of course, your own. It's been such a pleasure to discuss the human factor with you, and I want to close by strongly recommending this book to everyone. I mean, apart from the very important themes we've discussed here today, and I think their extraordinary relevance for today, particularly, uh, not least, the fact that values are universal uh, and that um, the human factor is preeminent, extraordinarily important, uh, the role of diplomacy, all of those themes. But it's also a book that is highly readable with great detail and a lot of humor about human relations at the very highest levels of state. So thank you, Archie, for sharing your insights with us and uh, for making us all wanna go out and read this book. And if I can also say to everyone, go out and be sure to listen to the previous episodes 
of this uh, St. Anthony's Looks at the World on St. Anthony's websites. Those, some of those episodes are on the politics of COVID-19, comparative national policies toward the pandemic, and of course, there's a return to Brexit in the current context. All three previous episodes are worth your time, and once again, illustrate the extraordinary breadth and depth among St. Anthony's scholars. So thank you very much. Stay well, uh, stay healthy, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. I certainly did. Goodbye.